as we dive into the word. It starts in Numbers chapter 13. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall ye send a man, everyone a ruler among them. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said unto them, Get you up this way southward, and go into the mountain, and see the land, and what it is. And the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that dwell in, whether tents or strongholds. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin unto Rehob, and men cometh to Hamath, and they returned from searching in the, land, uh, in the land forty days. And they told him and said, We came unto the land, whether thou sent us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there, and Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we will, we will be able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And if you jump to Numbers 14, a couple of verses there, starting at 22, Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. This morning... Uh, this passage that we read, um, I'd really like to take just a few moments and talk about the moment between a promise and a problem. The moment between a promise and a problem. There's two narratives here that you're hearing. When these 12 men went up, 10 of them came back and said, we can't do it. But two of them did say, let's go up at once. Lord, I am thankful that you have used, chosen this opportunity to reach us and talk to us. And so, God, as we begin to go through your word, I am asking that uh, we would have open ears to listen to what you would have and that we would be able to uh, take what you say and graft it in our spirit. So when we walk out of these doors, uh, we will know what our next step is in our journey with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Everyone say amen. And you may be seated. A moment is a minute portion of time. We have a lot of devices that help us tell time. Everyone has a smartphone, a watch. Your vehicle has a clock. Your home has clocks. Lots of ways for us to tell time. But there's really not a way for us to measure how we spend the time that we are given. Lots of ways to, to see what time it is, but you really can't measure what you do within that time. And in that time, there is something called moments. Moments are very fleeting. Moments happen quickly. Some are very important. Some are inconsequential, depending on the situation, but moments are a part of our journey. They're in everything we do. We all have moments in our past. Again, whether they be great or small, we do have moments in our past, and there are some moments that define us while others have just linked us to another season in our life or uh, another step that we have to take. But there are moments. There are moments today that you have to face, moments we engage today. And if you come to Monday night prayer, which I expect all of you to do, because I mean, really what you feel here on a Sunday is exactly what we feel on a Monday. And it's always a great time praying and being in community with one another. 
But when you leave Monday night prayer, if you live north of the church, then you will know something uh, very obvious. As you're headed home, very hungry because you've spent a lot of energy praying, that Taco Bell line is super long. It goes to the street, and I got an amen from somebody in the room. Like, you know, you just want a quick chicken quesadilla, and you can't get it because that line is to the street. I'm not talking about the moments you have to wait in line. I am talking about specific moments that we have to deal with in life that become critical moments, moments that ask such difficult questions, moments that you might find yourself saying, is this really what I expected? Uh, Do I really need to tackle this project? Uh, How can I reconnect or connect with my family? How do I stand up for myself? How do I say yes or no in this situation? Those moments that bear those questions that are hard to answer, those are the moments that I am talking about. And no doubt there are moments in our future that await us. Tomorrow's coming, and there are some moments that you're going to have to deal with and things that you have to answer to. And so I'm talking about these moments that uh, they might feel fleeting at moments at times, but they do have such grave implications, decisions that are made in those moments. I once heard it put this way. Whenever I am about to do something, I think, would an idiot do that? And if they would, I do not do that thing. Dwight Shrout. I've got a couple believers in the house that know Brother Dwight. Words of wisdom. In playing ball and in life, a person occasionally gets the opportunity to do something great. When that time comes, only two things matter. Being prepared to seize the moment and having the courage to take your best swing. Hank Aarons. I once heard that everyone has the opportunity to make one million dollars. At least one time in your lifetime, you'll have the opportunity to make a million. And I used to think, no way. Until it was right before the pandemic or as soon as the pandemic uh, started, Bitcoin dropped to $4,000 a coin. And within several months, it shot up to 60000 I thought I should have been a millionaire. But I froze. I said, I'm not buying nothing. <laughs> I think everybody has an opportunity. It's moments that you freeze, that you could have made a decision and didn't, whether it was out of fear, whatever it was that, that you froze in the moment. Those are the moments that I am talking about. Moments can be so quick and so small, but yet again, can be so big and pivotal in your life. There was a defining moment, October 30th, 1974, where a 32-year-old Muhammad Ali would face a 25-year-old George Foreman. And here, the stakes were really high for Muhammad Ali because Muhammad Ali had lost his title as heavyweight champion of the world when he had dodged the draft in Vietnam, and uh, the title was pulled from him. So here he's in the ring with somebody much younger than him, that was up and coming, a very skilled fighter. And actually, George Foreman was favored to win the fight. As that fight started that night, uh, Muhammad Ali did something uncharacteristic. He would lean against the ropes in the ring as George Foreman would begin the fight. And all Muhammad would do is just shield and try to block the fights and let George Foreman give his best shot until George was so tired of swinging That is when Muhammad Ali had saved up all of his energy and took the shots that he needed to win the fight. It was after that fight that Muhammad Ali began to talk about his strategy and it came to something that we call the rope-a-dope. See, there are moments that define you. There are moments that create signature moves. Every one of us have a signature move. You might not realize it, but you have a signature move. In that moment, when Muhammad Ali was fighting, his signature move became the rope-a-dope. That's where he would just lean against those ropes. He would let his opponent get tired and then he would attack and he would win. Every one of us, if you take a look at the patterns in our life, 
We face moments like he had to get in the ring and fight and try to claim back your title or give up and walk away from a sport that you love dearly. Every one of us face something in our life and we come in contact with something that we deal with. And you ever see the person that just is fight or flight all the time? That's their signature move. You ever see somebody that comes up to a decision they have to make and they freak out and they just lose their mind and they can't control their attitude. They can't control. That's their signature move. Every one of us in this room, we have a signature move. When you are in the middle of something, how you behave is predicated on the history that on how you have behaved in times past. And so we all have to make these decisions in these moments. The average adult makes 35,000 decisions per day. You're probably thinking, no way. Well, you have to really think through it. The first thing you do in the morning is you turn off your alarm. I lived with my brother when I first moved here for a couple of months. And, and my brother inherited my dad's alarm clock. Now, this isn't a pretty iPhone alarm clock where you can put, you know, we used, to, we used to play music here on Monday Night Prayer before we went to worship music. I called it the whales. They call it pads, but I feel like when you're praying and you're hearing waves and whales, and I hated it. I feel like I'm like going to a beach and I'm not at prayer, right? And like at my brother's house, he, he inherited this alarm from my dad. And this is what we would hear starting at like 6 a.m. Bah, 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 forever. And I would wake up and I'm like, dear Jesus, hit the stupid button. And he would. And then he'd go back to sleep and he'd revisit that same thing again. So my brother probably got in at least seven decisions before he even moved the leg, before he did anything, just hitting that snooze button. So imagine by the time our dear Steve Nano decides to get out of bed, it's like, okay, he's hit the alarm five times. Now, which leg do I move first? Start to move one leg, then it's the next leg. How long do I sit in bed? Then I gotta get up. And then it's all of those decisions we make and there are multiple decisions that we make before we even get out of bed. And so I'm not talking about every single decision in those moments that you're making, but when you look at in context for the subject at the beginning, what we read about, there were 12 men that had to complete a task. They went up to serve. They both went in with the same objective, all 12 men, the same objective, but yet 10 of the 12 came out with a different lens. It was all 12 of them that had to come out and only two were in agreement. And the other 10, as we read in the story, they didn't feel that they could take the land. They had to make a decision. The moment had come. Can we take it or can we not? They were faced with something in that moment. And in the moments that we have, there are three things that can, uh, three factors that will cripple you into the ability to seize the moment. The first factor is the victim mentality. Romans chapter 8 verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Suffering is a real thing. I'm not here minimizing suffering. I'm not, I could probably sit down and talk about suffering for a long time right now. And there are people in this room that are more qualified to talk about suffering than I am. You have gone through some things. You have suffered through some things. It's not to take away that you've ever suffered through anything but there comes a place when you have to leave suffering and become productive again instead of just sitting and wallowing in the suffering and becoming a victim to the circumstance that you're in. There's something to be said that at some point you have to get up and you have to move forward instead of sitting there. First Peter chapter 2 verse 21 says, For even here unto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Surely he hath borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. 
Jesus understood what it's like to suffer. Jesus understood what it's like to be slapped, spit on, lied, cheated. He knows what that felt like. And yet when you watch him go to the cross, who endured such pain, and here's the worst part, the suffering that he endured to the cross was nothing compared to what he dealt at the cross. The Bible said he took not just the weight of the cross was on him, but the weight of the world was on Jesus in that moment. And yet in the moment of sheer pain and dysfunction and everything else that was going on, he looked, you and I said, but for the joy that was set before me, he endured the cross. He was still forgiving at the cross. He still forgave somebody on the side of him at the cross. When everything seems to be just weighing heavily on him, he still was behaving as, as God would allow it, perfect in all of his ways. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. We love to talk about the power of his resurrection. If you're in the house and you need a miracle, you better believe in power of resurrection. If you're facing something in your marriage, you better believe there's power in resurrection. If you're facing an addiction, you better believe there's power in resurrection. If you're facing financial issues, you better believe there's power in resurrection. We love to talk about the power of resurrection, but in order for there to be a resurrection, there has to be death. And in order for there to be death, something has to suffer. But we don't want to identify with the suffering. All we want to identify is with the miracle, with the miraculous. Just like the 10 of those 12, they want to inherit the land, but they didn't want to have to fight for anything. They just wanted it given to them. And Lee Stanley wrote this in his book, Visionaring. We don't need to pray for more miracles. We just need to be more sensitive to the opportunity that God brings our way. We're promised an abundant life, but we were never promised a perfect life. One without pain, one without suffering. That was never it. But the victim mentality will cripple us to staying there longer than we ever intended. The Lord never meant for you to stay there. The Lord never meant for you to, to just be there and never see your miracle. You were meant to move forward, but all too often we become so victimized. You ever been passed up for a job promotion? Ever been passed along for somebody else, for something else? And we sit there, right? Well, I don't understand. I've been at this job for 10 years. I deserve that. My work quality is better than theirs. I, I don't, just because I'm not schmoozing up to the, to the foreman all the time or the, the manager or the superintendent. Why isn't it me? And all of a sudden, you get this victim mentality. And all the while, God is giving us these moments that build on each other. And all of a sudden, the moment comes to you. And all you say is, you know what? They don't pass me up too many times. I'm over it. You know, they can find somebody else to do that extra shift. Oh, you know what? They can find somebody else to clean those bathrooms. Oh, you know, and you just start being the victim of woe is me. When it so rightfully could have been you, should have been you. But now all of a sudden, now we're walking backwards. Those moments God provides, those little pieces that we could show our light in such a dark workplace, in an environment, wherever it is that you're dealing with. All of a sudden now, you're no longer showing up to those moments. And we become victims to the circumstance that we're currently in, that becomes a crippling effect to seizing the moment, the victim mentality. The second thing that cripples our ability to seize the moment is comparisons. Look at the life of Jesus. He had abandonment issues. Jesus had abandonment issues. Imagine being 12 years old. He's in the temple teaching. His parents leave. 
All of a sudden, they're into the journey, and mom says, hey, Joe, uh, grab the Cheerios. I'm sure Jesus needs a snack. He's hungry. Well, I don't, have, where's, I don't have Jesus. I thought you had Jesus. You're the mom. I thought you always had. I thought moms always took care of the kids. You're the father, too. You should probably help out around here, right? Do I get an amen from all the moms? Yeah. Kids will go to me. I'll be sitting right near my boys, and they'll leave me, go find mom to help do something. Like, I was, like, literally six inches away from them. Like, why don't you ask your dad? Well, I, I just, uh, you wait, why not? Ask your father. He's right there. Like, I'm not mad. Like, if that's what you want, go ahead. That's the truth, right? Every dad's like, hey, I hear you. But imagine Jesus teaching in the temple, and all of a sudden, he can't find his parents. Do I have anybody here that's ever been lost, like, in a grocery store as a child? Do I have anybody? I hear a couple oh, yes. Like, you know what it's like to be on aisle three. You look up, and mom and dad's gone. Now, listen, when you grow up like me, everything was hell. We preached hell every other week. You couldn't go nowhere without going to hell or playing with hell. It was always about hell. And so, man, as a kid, when you can't find mom or dad, man, you think like, oh, no, I'm going to hell. <laughs> they made it, and I look behind. <laughs> you start wondering like, oh, man, where are my parents at? And so you start questioning, but Jesus felt abandoned. Or maybe let's go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus takes his three closest friends, the three closest out of the twelve. Gets into the garden, starts to pray. All of a sudden, he comes back, and the three are sleeping. It's like, you couldn't even pray with me an hour? They couldn't even hang with him one hour. Newsflash, there are some people on the journey with you that aren't called to the same level of consecration that you're at right now. There are some people that are on the journey with you that sometimes we keep acting like, man, how come they haven't bought in as much as I have? How come? And listen, I'm here to tell you, not everybody is in the same place you are. So stop frustrating somebody else because you're frustrated at them, talking to them like, hey, what's your problem? Well, they're just not where you are. That's why I believe we have two hands. There ought to be a part of us with one hand. We're going to lift up somebody that's, that's hanging down here. And I'm going to take this hand and I'm going to couple it with somebody that's up here. And together we're better. Together we're going to grow the kingdom. And we're going to be pulling and I'm going to be pushing on somebody else. Because that is the job of the church. So don't get so frustrated when you feel abandoned. Because the people that are closest to you aren't where you are yet. But here it is. Jesus feels abandoned. Even in prayer, we feel like we're carrying everything. Or maybe it was the Last Supper. It's the world's worst Facebook account in the history of social media. He had 12 followers, 12 dudes. That's it. You know, some of y'all keep checking your Facebook. I got a youngest son. Hey, buddy. He's right there. He checks his YouTube account all the time. Every time he has a new follower, subscriber, Dad, I got three new subscribers. Cool. Man, I lost one. Yeah. Some of y'all don't be laughing because some of you be checking your Facebook and Instagram and be like, man, I had 531. I'm at 530. Like, who left? Like, who's out the camp, right? I'm not speaking to somebody's life right now. You're so worried about who's on your Instagram and Facebook. It's the same thing with Jesus. Imagine Jesus sitting at dinner. You only got 12 people. All of a sudden, ding, you look up and there's only 11. It's not hard to find out who's the one that left you. He's like, ooh, Judas left me at dinner. He just got done taking a selfie with the squad, like, what's for dinner? About to post it, and there's a, one less dude following him. Imagine the frustration and the abandonment that Jesus felt when the very person he trusted with money was the very person that used his trust against him and, 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 and sold him out for silver. Jesus had abandonment issues. That's the same thing with us. We, we get to feel these abandonment issues, and we start comparing ourselves to everybody else. Say, so, man, why do they keep leaving me? Why am I the only one praying? Why does it feel like I'm the only one that cares right now? 
Why is it the only one? I keep sowing into this. I keep giving, but yet nobody. And all of a sudden, we start to wonder, man, is it me? Is it me? Just that we got passed up on the promotion. Is it me? What did I do wrong? Is there something I need to change? And then all of a sudden, when the moment comes, you freeze because now you're operating out of an offense. I'm not doing it. You know what? Go find another singer. You know what? You need somebody on the fit team? Figure it out. I'm not coming here one more time holding these signs. I keep waiting for it to be my time. And all of a sudden, these moments that God is giving us, we keep walking away from these moments because we're so busy sitting in a fence and we're so busy sitting as the victim in the role. Second Corinthians chapter 10 to 12 tells us not to compare ourselves to one another. You're in the season you're in because that's where God chooses for you to be. There's a place for you in the kingdom, but listen, if he can't trust us with the little, then how will he trust us with the big? But we can't contain to stay, remain to stay as the victim or begin to compare ourselves one to another. And the third thing that will cripple your ability to seize the moment is the ability to commit. What would happen if Rosa Parks decided she wasn't committing to the moment on that bus? What would happen if Rosa said, you know what? Man, that's a lot of publicity. That's that, a lot's happening. I, I, I don't know. You know what? Let somebody else take the seat. But one day after tired as she was working her long shift, came on that bus. She got on that bus and sat in that seat and started one of the pivotal pieces of what it was in the civil rights movement. All because she decided I'm going to take advantage of the moment that's in front of me. Maybe it was Martin Luther when he decided as frustrated as he was with the Catholic Church and all of his questions and issues with indulgences and just this money-making scam that was uh, coming out as the church needed money. And all of a sudden, Martin decides to write 95 debates. They call it the 95 Thesis. Things he wanted to talk about with the church and walked up to that church door and nailed it to the church, which started the Protestant Reformation, which changed the landscape of the church as we know it today. Because someone said, I'm going to step into this moment and this is where the decision I make that will shift culture and history. Queen Esther, here she is, just landed in the palace. She just got there. And Haman, who served, king, uh, served the king, here Haman said, everybody's going to bow, and whoever doesn't bow, I'm coming after them. And so Mordecai didn't bow to Haman. And so now Mordecai is on the outs as Haman is formulating a plan and putting in a law together that would be the genocide of the Jews in that time period. And so Mordecai goes to Queen Esther and says, hey, listen, girl, if you don't do something, they're going to kill us. She says, listen, just back off for a second. I just like unpacked. This is the nicest house I've ever lived in. Let me hang out here for a minute before you get me all worked up. And he said, girl, they'll come after us. They'll come after you. And that's when she said, if I perish, I perish. Because she sees the moment. She sees the moment, made the right decision. She saved thousands and thousands of Jews because she decided to seize the moment. James chapter 1, verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Commit to something. Stop sitting sideline. If you are in a valley of decision right now, I dare you today to make a commitment. Do something. Stop sitting there in the moment. It's time for us to get up. If you have been wallowing in depression, anxiety, if you have been fighting some things, then I'm challenging you today that it's time to get up and commit to the moment and make up your mind that you're not going to stay seated in the same position anymore and you're not going to wallow and get up. It is no secret that we are in a pre-launch phase to build something great in the, on the property on the side of us here. I was 
in a, uh, a meeting this Friday, and it was a clergyman meeting. They do it twice of these in Sterling Heights. And there is the mayor, chief of police, uh, the fire chief, the city manager. Uh, there's, and, and, and I want to commend this church because as the city manager began, she began with her speech on just inclusive, inclusivity and the, and the diversity in the community and how we're partnering with uh, different demographics and helping. First Church was brought up. I didn't even say anything. They just brought up First Church and said that Pride and Shine has been a staple for their community and that if anybody else, any other church would like to join First Church, be there. And so I want to commend you for following the vision of this church and serving this city. And doing what you do because the city is taking notice. As we begin to sit there, we went through the census and I looked at the census. And Sterling Heights right now is the second largest um, city outside of Detroit Metro. It is the second largest suburb at 135,346 residents. I did the math of every city that touches Sterling Heights. There are many of you that live even further outside of this scope, but I just did the math. If, if the city touches Sterling Heights, there are 528,818 residents. That is over half a million residents within our bordering cities. I began to talk to the city as the city was asking, is there anything we can do for you? And as everybody began to ask the city, can you do this? Can you help us with this? And just drawing from it. When it came to my turn to speak, I said, yeah. I said, I need your help. I said, Domestic Awareness Month is coming up in October. And our, our FC Heart, and I gave them the vision and the heartbeat of what Talisha has done with FC Heart and the team that she has built with FC Heart. And I began to talk about how uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month is coming up. And we have partnered with Grace Centers of Hope. And First Church is putting together, I think, over 50 baskets to touch women who have, who have been victims and yet have survived and they're recovering. And we're going to partner with them. And, and I said, you know what? How do we as First Church get involved in Sterling Heights to help? The chief of police stood up and he said, Mike, I am so glad you asked that. I would love if I, if I passed your contact to every officer that every victim that is pulled out of a situation, I would like to put them in contact with First Church if you guys can help them for the first night. It's a place for us to get into this city. It's a place for us to touch lives. We're not trying to build another building just to chalk off the board and build a legacy. There are people and names outside of these walls that need us. A city that is looking for refuge. A city that is looking for help and needs us. This isn't about a building program. This isn't about fattening our pockets. The legacy is not for Pastor Hoffman to say, I built another building. The legacy is, I have listened to God, I have fulfilled the vision, and we are reaching thousands of people in our own city as a result of a calling that God has placed in his life today. That is why we're building. But it's going to take some effort from all of us. It's going to take deeper consecration, deeper prayer, and yes, it will take financial uh, disciplines for us to build that there. So there's a moment that's coming for us. What are we going to do? What are we going to do as a church? Are we truly going to be disciples and follow the mission of the church? Are we going to submit to the vision of God? Are we going to commit spiritually and financially? Are we going to do that? Perhaps we could be like the spies that came from Canaan. And maybe there's some here. I can't see it. That's too much money. We're already stretched enough. We're running multiple services. I don't think it's wise for us to do that. Listen. 
I don't think it's wise for us to stop where we are now. There's a city that needs us and the mission of the church is to go out and teach and reach and baptize in Jesus' name. Let them be filled with the Holy Ghost. Let them start to be healed. This city needs it. Those that are addicted need it. Those that are broken, divorced, struggling with addiction, they need us in this hour. This is the hour of the church. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? The moment is here. Or perhaps maybe there's a moment in your life where you're facing something spiritually. Maybe it's something in your own family. And the moment is here and the moment can seem so big that you don't know how to take the next step. You've been crippled by alienation. You've been crippled by being a victim of the circumstance that you're in. Indecision over the years. I want you to listen to this story that happens in 1 Kings chapter 18. Here, Elijah meets Ahab. You have to understand, Ahab married Jezebel. Jezebel is a Phoenician woman. She influences Ahab and Israel. And now, uh, Baal is the God that is introduced into Israel. All because of a woman that brought with her something into a new culture and infiltrated that culture. If you're in here and you're in a relationship that is toxic... For all of you that are dating, let me tell you something. Be careful who you're dating. Don't let them bring something into your culture that shifts and changes and that waters down what you believe in. And all of a sudden now, there's a new God in town because there's a, there's a Jezebel that came in and she brought something in. Don't let somebody come into your life and shift and change the values that you've had for so long because you've introduced something into your life. But here, Elijah warns Ahab and says, listen, if you don't knock it off with worshiping Baal, then there's punishment that's coming. And King Ahab disregarded it and kicked him out. And, and matter of fact, Jezebel at that point was already persecuting prophets from Israel. And so here, Elijah leaves with a warning. Three years later, God comes back to Elijah and says, hey, buddy, I need you to go back to Ahab and I need you to tell them it's time to knock it off. He comes back to Ahab and mind you, understanding that Jezebel is killing prophets Ahab didn't listen the first time. There's a famine, and his life is on the line. He had to make a decision in that moment. Do I dare go back? Do I dare do this? And he did. And here, he challenges Ahab. You bring all of your false prophets together, and we're gonna, it's like a drum off. We're going to have a bull and an altar here, a bull and an altar here, and the God that answers by fire is the true God. 850 prophets come together. They're surrounding. And all of a sudden, they start chanting, they're praying, nothing happens. If you read the story, I love this story. Because when you read the story, Elijah starts taunting them, which I would 100% do. Like, he can't hear you. Go a little bit louder. Maybe he's taking a nap. Like, and he's just getting, and they're getting ticked. They cut even more. They get even louder. They're trying to just get whatever attention they can from their God who's not answering. And all of a sudden, I mean, Elijah's just taunting them. He's like, you know what? And so finally, he's like, are you guys done? You guys tired yet? And they finally give up. And Elijah does this. He said, okay, great. Let's dig some trenches. Then we're going to take water. We're going to douse the, the ox, we're going to, the bull, and we're going to douse these trenches with water. And we're going to see that when God answers by fire, it's not a coincidence. It's actually going to take up everything and look it all up and, and everything will be burnt. And sure enough, after a short prayer, it was a short prayer. I was out to lunch with a couple of people last week, a couple of days ago. And uh, they said, hey, can you just pray over the food? I said, sure. Jesus bless his food uh, and just say amen. 
You're like, oh, that's kind of fast. I'm like, well, I actually don't live like from like food prayer to food prayer. I like pray during the day, so I'm pretty sure my salvation's not in check because I didn't pray like, you know, a 50-word prayer for dinner. Just an FYI, if you ever eat with me, I will have a rifle prayer, like boom, done. Like, let's eat. Like, I, I, don't, I don't need a long prayer. Yeah, I don't need a long prayer to get saved before I eat. I, I, I try to stay in prayer. So uh, that's just free for you. That's fine. But anyways, he's, he does this quick shotgun prayer, and then boom, fire comes down. It licks up all the water, takes the bull. It's all gone. And in that moment, 850 of those priests are gone, the bull is gone, and the God that answered by fire was the true God. He was the one true God, and that was shown through all of Israel. And that started because one person decided that they were going to take the opportunity, the moment that presented itself, and he was going to operate in that moment. As I begin to read that story, I always thought that was the win. I, I did. I thought, like, wow, that's incredible. So he, he called on fire. But I kept reading, and you get into 2 Kings, and I found out, I really, it really touched me when I figured out, I think something happened to Elijah other than just what happened in Israel. If you go down to 2 Kings chapter 1, you'll find that here, now King, a, uh, King Ahab died. He is gone now. And now you have King Ahaziah. He's the new king. He brings in another god, Beelzebub. He gets his new place. He's the new king. He's got the suite, man. It's legit. He's on the second floor balcony. He falls off, severely hurts himself. He's in bed. He sends his men. He said, hey, I need you to go to the temple and find out from Beelzebub if I'm ever going to get out of, out of this bed or is this it for me? The men leave to go to the temple to find out. And once again, God awakens Elijah and says, hey, I need you to go and confront these men and tell, tell them that you're never getting out of that bed because you sought the wrong God. Elijah has the opportunity once again, do I make this call or do I just hang back? But Elijah's already had moments with God in the past. See, a lot of times we look at somebody in ministry or we look at somebody that's victory after victory and we wonder, like, how is it? They're always getting the victory and I feel like I'm the one that's always behind. It's easy. They've had moments before in the past that they have been faithful. They've had moments where they kept praying. They had moments where they were in struggle and they remained faithful. And so that becomes what their signature move is. When somebody's in a fight, they're gonna survive it because they've been in fights before. But if all we ever do is run when we get frustrated and we get hurt and everything is chaos, then the next time the situation comes, this is what's gonna happen again, fight or flight. It's the repetitive mode. It's the things that we keep going back to. And I think Elijah here in this point says, you know what, I'm gonna go. He meets the men and tells them, say, listen, you can go back to Ahaziah and tell him he's not getting out of bed. This is it for him. Those men go back to Ahaziah and they tell him, say, listen, it's over. Call it a day. He gets ticked. He said, you go get Elijah. He sends a captain and 50 men over to Elijah. They meet Elijah. Elijah's on a, on a hilltop. And this is what floored me. Second Kings, verse 10 of chapter 1. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and their 50. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, also, he sent him another captain with another 50. So here those men come up to him. And he said, you know, if, if, if I'm a man of God, then I'll call down fire again. Guess what happened? It came. So guess what the king heard? You lost 51 dudes, a captain and 50 guys. Go back and said, you know what? I'll take, imagine being the second platoon. All right, buddy, now you take 50 more and you guys go. I would hate to be those 50, like knowing them other dudes are torched. Like, all right, king. 
Yeah, that's a terrible day, knowing you're going to your death. They get back to Elijah. Elijah does the same thing in verse 12. And Elijah answered and said unto him, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. That's when it hit me. Because Elijah, he sees the moment when he was fighting Baal and King Ahab. When the moment came again for his life to be threatened, I believe God gave him provision the first moment when he prayed down fire from heaven. God gave him a way of escape when he would need it later on. It's the same thing with us today. If, if your provision could be in the moment that you're dealing with now, that could be three years from now. There are things that are coming down the road that you might not understand or know or even see, but God is preparing you for that in the season right now it's the moment that you're dealing with right now that will prepare you for tomorrow and the day after and to me the miracle for elijah wasn't the first time he called down fire to me the 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 miracle for me with elijah was when it came down and he needed protection he was able to call fire from because it wasn't his first time he was there he had been there before so if you're in a battle right now then i'm asking you be in a monday night prayer meeting be in a life group you have to plug into something because when the time comes and you need it it won't be your first time needing an answer from God. And that way, when you're in the situation, you can say, hey, I've already been here before. This isn't nothing new to me. This isn't going to rattle me. But that's where the consistency in your walk with God comes from is when in those moments we find ourselves in prayer. It's in those moments we're still reading scripture. It's in those moments we're tapping into his spirit. So when the time comes, it's no longer I'm up here and I'm all the way down here. I come up here and I'm all the way down here. And I'm coming to a close if the, the worship team could come up. It's the moments that can become so small that have such great implications in our life. If you look at Jesus on the cross, there are two hanging with him, one on each side. One of them says, hey, if you're the son of, if you're the son of God, why don't you come down and save us? The other one said, remember me. You know what the difference between the two are? The difference is one didn't want relationship, just wanted deliverance. One just didn't want anything to do. He said, hey, aren't you God? Then fix it. Anybody ever pray like that before? Lord, just get me out of this mess. Just get me out of it. I haven't been praying, haven't been reading, haven't been consecrated, haven't been disciplined. All of a sudden I'm in a jam and what am I doing? God, you got to get me out of this. I need the bailout plan. And God's saying, you have no covenant with me. You have no relationship with me. When meanwhile, the other one is saying, I just need you to remember me. I know I'm broken. I know I've made my mistakes. I know I am a thief. I'm not hiding. I'm not running. This is who I am. Will you remember me? And he was saved because he understood who he was and he needed a relationship with God. He needed that relationship with Jesus. So if you're in the room and you're wondering why I keep facing the same battles, I'm asking, are you looking to Jesus as a bailout plan? or Are you looking to Jesus to build a relationship with him? It's in that moment those two had a choice to make. One decided to speak arrogantly to Jesus and say, why don't you just save me from this? While the other one in the moment recognized what his flaws were and said, Lord, I need you to come help me. It's the moment between a problem and a promise. The moment for the Israelites, the moment for those 12. The promise was the land was supposed to be theirs. They had wandered enough. They've wandered around for forever. But they couldn't come into Canaan because why? There was a problem. They seen giants. They seen their old enemies there. And so what happened? They were distracted. I want us to stand. They were distracted because all they could see was their enemies and all they could see were giants in front of them.
Ten of them. The other two could see past it. So here's the moment that you're faced with. See, Scripture tells us that by one man sin entered into the world, and by another, salvation entered into the world. And so you can look at Jesus on the cross, and if you're in this room, you understand the promise is that we can abide with him for all of eternity in heaven. But the problem is that sin entered the world. Sin divides. There cannot be sin in heaven. What's broken here has to be bended before it gets up there. You can't fix sin once you're in heaven. It's not allowed. So, if you look at Acts 2, 37, what do we have to do to be saved? We could spend hours talking about scripture and Bible studies on the name of Jesus, and, but the, 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 the formula that you can melt it all down to with time restraint is repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and your children and to all that are far off. So the promise is yours, but the problem is sin. And if you're in this room and you're saying, man, I haven't made it right with Jesus. I haven't asked him to forgive me yet. I have not been baptized like the scripture tells us in the name of Jesus. Then you know what? There's a moment between your problem and your promise that you can fix today. There's a moment if you have never spoken, if you have never spoken in tongues, you can do that this morning. I want us to come up to the front. And if you're here and that's a step that you haven't taken yet, I urge you, we'll pray with you. You can take that step this morning. To know that the moment between your promise and your problem is here. And it's as simple as you talking to Jesus and asking him for forgiveness. It's as simple as making the decision of, I'm going to talk to Pastor John who's right up front. And I'm going to say, hey man, I need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Because I need this moment to marry up and forgive me of my problem and get me to the promise. Just like those guys in Canaan. Or maybe you're facing something in your life. And you're trying to figure out, God has promised me some things. There are moments in your prayer closet that God promised you something. And because of time and place and situations that have come between, all of a sudden you don't have a problem in front of your promise. The moment is here where you can say, all right, God, how am I going to get through this? Am I going to wallow in my pain? Am I going to sit in suffering? Am I going to continue to be the victim? Am I going to be crippled? Or am I going to operate out of faith? And take advantage of this moment. I don't know how many moments we're afforded. I can't promise you how many moments we have ahead of us. But I can't promise you this. If you take advantage of these moments, there's going to be a, coming, there's going to be a time in your life where you're going to look back and you're going to be able to see that the provision was in the moment from three years ago and it's manifesting itself right here. If you and your spouse have been at odds with each other and you don't know how to get past that, and all we've ever done is, is play the blame game and become so sensitive to what everybody else is saying and, and the struggle in the marriage. Well, he promised us an abundant life, but never one that was free from suffering. But he did say, listen, let no man tear this apart. There was a promise that was given to you as a picture of what the church in Christ is in a marriage. Then you know what I'm here to tell you? Then you can get through that moment today by just praying and taking the next step instead of wallowing in it. If you're fighting addiction this morning, I'm here to tell you between the promise of an abundant life and the problem that you're in, God can break that addiction today. God can heal your marriage today. God can change your financial situation today. But it takes us operating in the moment right now. Right now. So what is it that you're facing? 
What is it that you're facing? And we're going to sing here in just a moment. But in, in order for Elijah, when faced with death, you have 51 people coming after you. For him to be able to call down fire, it's because the moment wasn't new to him. I can look at many people in this room when they're sick. You know what happens? When Jay Bourne is sick and he's still going to the doctors and fighting COVID, he's been in a place of cancer. And so then Jay Bourne can say, God, you brought me out of cancer and you healed me then, then you'll take care of me in COVID. I can look at Jesse and Esmeralda and they can say, hey, listen, we might have an argument as a family, but you brought me out of almost sheer divorce and here I am standing on the ground. Here my boys are playing on the team. Why? Because the moment's not new to them. They can look at it and say, hey, I'm not gonna be afraid anymore because I've had these moments and I've made the right decisions and so here I stand. Because the moment is not new. If you have been running, if you've been running, I challenge you, let today be the first day that you engage in the moment. Let today be the catalyst for change for the rest of your life. Let you be able to look a year from now and be able to look back at this moment today and say, it started when I began to pray over my marriage. It started when I began to pray over my addiction. It started when I began to pray over my pain. But all too often we sit in the fence and if you have been offended, that is one of the biggest crippling things in the church is when we become offended and we sit there and wallow in it. When God said, I never designed you to sit there. It's okay to sorrow. It's okay to learn something, but it's time for you to get up and move forward. And if we're going to be a pillar and a light in this city, it's going to take everybody in this room to reach this city. It's just not up to FC Heart. It's just not up to the worship team. It's not up to the pastoral team. It's just not up to Pastor Hoffman. It takes everybody in this room to say, hey, you know what? Whatever I got to do, I'm going to be in Monday night prayer. I'm going to start praying at home on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. I'm going to start being, I'm just going to be disciplined in my finances. Why? Because these are the moments we build towards the future. It was a small cloud that produced the rain that delivered Israel out of a famine. It was a tiny little birth that produced a deliverance for a whole world. It starts off small. But if we don't take advantage of the small moments, when the big moments come, we'll fold and we'll die. And I want us to start singing. And I want us to start inventorying where we really are and just be saying, God, if there's something inside of me that you have to remove or add to me, I need you to do that. God, if I'm involved in something, bring that to the forefront of my mind so I can shift, so I can shift the culture in my relationships. Shift the change, God, that it would be a transforming of my mind. Lord, you know every need that is in this room. God, you can see where we're headed. You have called us. This isn't something we're trying to do on our own. But God, there are people that have come into this room that God, they are broken before you. It seems like they can't catch a break. They're not winning. And so, Lord, I need you to speak into their life right now. And, God, that you would begin to impart wisdom to know how to deal with the situation that they're in, to be able to impart clarity in their mind, to know that this is the next step, that we're not going to wallow and we're not going to sit, God, as a victim anymore, Lord. I'm not going to sit, Lord, and think of just how everybody else can compare myself to other people with all of my insecurities and sit idle in the moment when I can make my decision right now, God, to take my next step in my marriage, to take my next step financially, to take my next step in reaching the city and building a community that we can come and have a place where we can touch lives and change it for the kingdom, for all the names we don't have and the people outside these doors looking for restoration and healing, God. I'm asking, Lord, that you help us right now, God. Oh.
This, this is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. Oh, this is how I fight my battles. Come on and prophesy. This is how I fight my battles. Oh uh-huh. 